You are now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who inspire and intrigue me. We get into the journey of their lives, how they got to where they are today, and how they get through the day today. Because I believe our feelings of being enough, worthy, successful, fulfilled, loved are not out there somewhere. Once I have the book deal, once I meet the person of my dreams, once I can afford to buy this, then I'll feel enough. You may for a little bit, but likely if you keep putting it outside of yourself, you will keep on chasing it. It's up to you to claim it every day, sometimes every moment of the day. On today's episode, I have Mary Morantz. Her first book, a memoir called Dirt, came out a couple months ago. I got to talk to her actually the day that the book came out. She is an author, a speaker, a podcast host. And um, yeah, it was really interesting getting into her journey of her life and what led her to writing her book. All right, let's get into the episode. Let's start with, I liked hearing about like how people have grown up and especially like teenage years, because I feel like, you know, there's so much pressure on us that Mm -hmm. time. And like, it sort of like feels like we have to figure out what we're going to do with the rest of our life and some for some people. So yeah, what was life like for you growing up and during those ages? Yeah, you know, I, um, I don't know how to tell teenage years without starting that I did grow up in a single white trailer in West Virginia. And Um, You know, I think for me, and it does not have to be this way, but for me, that became a big part of my identity or this shame where I felt like there was something lacking or like something that disqualified me or just I really like started to take on a lot of insecurity, especially in the teenage years because of the trailer. And, you know, what's been really interesting as an adult is to have some conversations with maybe some kids I grew up with or people who knew me in high school. And they said, you know, I mean, I never remember a trailer, but honestly, I never really thought too much about it. Trailer against me because like, you know, trailers aren't that unusual where I grew up and, and none of us were in super fancy houses maybe. But to me, I think the parts in our story that we think are flawed, they always feel much more flawed to us than they look to other people. Yeah, that's so interesting because yeah, I, I can understand that where you're, you could question your who you are, where you're placed in the world by living in a trailer. And then yeah, you're at, saying now that these people were like, we didn't even think about that. Yeah. I grew up in a pretty decent house with a big yard and a pool. But my mom, based on mm-hmm. how she was raised, I guess, or something, and I guess that she worked like, you know, several jobs to make the bills paid and stuff like that. So it felt like to me that we were the poor ones and everyone else had more and we always had enough. And like, and it was such a weird thing because mm-hmm. looking back, I'm like, we had a decent side house. We had a pool. Like what, you know, like, but that there was this like mm. from my mom, I mean, well, pay both of them, I guess, too, this feeling of not enough that I went to my yeah. own like school, went through life as if we're down here. <laughs> mm. When again, like people were yeah. like, I'm like, and also I'm like, I lived in like, I didn't I even have it. Like, so it's just this interesting thing that we can carry around. So you, you felt that way or just your mom felt that way? Well, yeah, I took it on, but from like I think that that's where it on. came from was that they this feeling that mm. she was like trying to keep up, not have enough. We don't, you know, we need, you know, we need to have things. You know, this sort of idea. 
that must have been put into her and so then was part of me. So I remember always yeah. feeling like we were the outsiders. We were like less than. We didn't have enough, which, yeah, there were people that had nicer houses, but most people were like us or even had less. But that it was part of me mm. of feeling like I'm the outsider. I'm the one that's like. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting, all the different ways we can take that on. And, um, you know, it can be, it can be things like, there's like a, that great country song that's like the straight hair girls, they all want curls and the brunettes want to be blonde, right? So we all have these things where we think, man, if I just had her house or if I had her clothes or if I had her parents or if I had her story or if I didn't have this crazy, because when I was growing up, I had crazy 1980s permed, <laughs> like not even cute curls, just like chemically like sizzled hair. And I have this line in Dirt that talks about how you know, I had big hair bangs and, you know, chemically altered perm and, you know, that particular decade's love of the ability to change your lot in life overnight, right? We, we wanted to like fry our natural given characteristics into this over teased, over sprayed, big version of ourselves we thought we had to be in order to fit in. Love that. I was at first like, where is she going with yeah. this? And then I'm like, <laughs> I knew there. it was going to be gotta, there. You got to go with it. You got to always trust me that I'll get I there. It. I love it. It's so good. <laughs> but, okay. Yeah. So, all right. So that was like where you were coming from. And so then, yeah, like when you're starting to be getting close to graduating high school, like, did you feel like, what did you feel like you wanted to do with your life? Did you have opportunities? Did you feel pressured from family mm. or outside or like, yeah, like. I feel like we're so like, I have to figure out what I'm doing with the rest of my life right now. <laughs> yeah. For me, honestly, like when you say like you're graduating high school and you're about to go out in the world, what did you feel like you had to do? And my answer was like, run, <laughs> you know, it was like, it wasn't even necessarily like I have to run from my family or I have to run and get out of like where I came from or anything like that. It was more just like, it felt like someone hired the starting pistol and like that example where it just feels like I just had to get out and I had to run as fast as I could to get to that good life because I felt like I had all this ground I had to make up and I just felt this urgency and this like atomic clock ticking out all the seconds about how you're running out of time to make a generational change and I knew that I wanted a home you know I knew I wanted a like a nice home and I wanted like the happy family or I wanted the nice clothes or whatever the case was, I knew I wanted to go out and have this like version of the good life that television told me it looked like. And I just felt uh, like urgency is the best word. It just felt like in my chest and in my gut, it was like, you have to go do this and you have to do it now because your whole life could end up like this if you're not careful. And so besides the fact that you lived in a trailer, was your like, I mean, we all have family stuff of some kind, but like, did you have a good home life of feeling like loving parents? Do you have siblings? Was it just the fact of like, we don't feel yeah. like we have enough in a trailer and I need to get out of here. I need to have more for myself to look like the people on TV. Or was there also like struggles at home? Well, I mean, I am an only child and um, I came from, I, there was a lot of love in my family. My parents both loved me individually. My grandma Goldie, she's a big character in the book. She loved me like crazy you know, my parents, my mom did end up leaving when I was nine. And that's a big arc in the story, a very redemptive healing arc ultimately, but it's very hard in the first 
part because the book is divided into the girl in the trailer and the girl after the trailer. And so the girl in the trailer is told, you know, that scene of her leaving is told very much from the perspective of nine-year-old me and what that felt like the morning I found out she was going. And so that becomes a huge wound that opens up a huge trauma. And I think it's a big reason I spend most of my life feeling like I need to be more of something in order to get the people I love to stay or to be worthy of people staying. And then I also talk about like on my dad's side, he was very tough on me, but in a good way, but very tough on me and determined that I would do better in life than he did. And that can kind of turn into wearing achievement, like uh, a mask we take on to deal with that trauma of like, well, that's how you get love. That's how you're worthy of love. And that's, I mean, like, the, like, let me just sit, like say right out the gate that I think every parent does some of that to their kids. And I think if Justin and I ever get to be parents, we will do that too with our kids. There's no, this is not a criticism of my parents. It's just that all of us as humans, the world outside of us, we start to interpret those things as these beliefs we take on of who we have to be in order to be loved. Yeah. And I'm already starting to be aware of it. Like, and I'm very mindful and aware of all of these things and I've done so much work. But yeah, even my own kids, like I notice um, they love to like perform and, you know, play music and stuff. And especially since I came from that world that I'm like, yay. And like, I love, oh, yay. Sing me a song of the song. Do you have Mm -hmm. another song for me today? It's like, see ya. And then I'm already starting to be like, oh, no, like I have to make sure you know, is that what she's going to be like? I get so much love and attention from my mom when she, it's just an interesting, delicate thing. Cause like, of course I do love it and she seems to love it, but just being present of that, like you just never know what mm-hmm. a kid can take on and then like run their entire life on it based on my own wounds of like stuff too, that I'm like, I don't even have a pinpoint of moment in my life, but like that, the way that I shaped my life was, yeah, feeling like had to reroute yeah. these things from my childhood that my parents probably did not do intentionally. Do you know what your Enneagram type is? I don't actually. That's like one thing I mm. don't know. <laughs> mm. All the tests. Yeah. I, I highly, highly, highly recommend the book, The Road Back to You from Ian Morgan Cron. He does such a beautiful job of explaining how these nine personality types are not how we're ourselves. They are masks. They're masks we put on. For some kids, it's that they need to keep everything perfect to be loved. And for some kids, it's that, oh, you're such an easy kid. You're so, you know, easygoing. Like, you know, you're not any work. You're so low maintenance. And so they become like peacemakers. They really highly value being seen as people who are just easy to get along with. And all of the different types are the fact that there are nine types and that every person has one tells me that all of us at one point or another start to believe things about the world that we just tell ourselves we have to be in order to be worthy and, you know, worthy and appreciated by and celebrated by the world. Yeah. A big part of mine story and that's like not that, but I've learned from other work that like I've moved through my life. Like I'm independent. I don't need anyone, uh, which has helped me in many ways and pushed me. But then it also was because I felt like nobody loved me and nobody cared about me. And so like, that's like a different thing, but like, and it made me like create walls and stuff. And so like learning that makes me like, I'm constantly remembering like, oh, this is me like building up a story of because I feel like nobody believes in me or cares in me. So I got this. I'll do it alone. I don't need help. Like whatever sorts of things. So it's so interesting. And I I don't even know like exactly where that came from. Anyway, let's get back to you. Can I actually read you a very quick part (laughs) of this? (laughs) Because um, what you just said is basically like spot on this thing that I talk about Um, it's the section right after my mom has left. Um, and it says, 
When mom left, she wasn't totally gone. In the beginning, she would come back once or twice a month for a couple of days when she was off from work, and then it was once every month, and then eventually it was just a few times a year. She was never totally gone. It wasn't like she walked out the door and I never saw her again. But all that meant was, over and over, I got familiar with her leaving. I lost count of how many times I watched her walk away, lost count of how many times I watched the dust kick up in a fury under her fleeing tires, its hopeful, desperate display chasing after her down the driveway, arms always open wide, because it somehow never seemed to learn. I lost count of how many times I stood in doorways whispering, don't go, don't go, don't go, until eventually I just stopped looking. That's when I decided to stop focusing. Over time, I've realized this thing I do when I think someone is about to leave me. Right then and there, I determined to become something so much more. I decided to go out and become so successful at something in life to achieve something so great that it will make them regret missing out on any of it. It makes me want to go out and do something so beautiful, so extraordinary with my one precious life, if for no other reason than it will make them sad that they weren't there to see it firsthand. That'll show them, I think to myself. I bet then they'll wish they would have stuck around. The obvious problem with this plan, of course, is that it implicitly gives away my most deeply held fear and belief. Maybe they were right. Maybe without all this more, I was never someone worth staying for to begin with. Maybe they were right to leave. Um, And then it kind of goes on for a little bit. And it says, it makes me think of a daisy growing wild in the middle of a burnt scorched earth. It's thin, delicate petals wilting and withering in the heat. This beauty turning to ashes right in front of me at the hands of the very revenge wasteland that grew it. Sure, we might go out and temporarily grow something pretty in the name of getting back at someone who wouldn't stay. From a distance, it may even look like we're winning. This hope springs eternal in the midst of broken ground. But the wilting, withering question remains, how long can we really survive that way? And so when you talked about like putting up walls and so you were like, all right, I am leaving. So then do you have a pl- like, did you have a plan as graduation is coming up? Like, did, were you like dead set on applying to colleges or like I'm just running away and moving somewhere? What did you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and so I knew that that was the next step. Um the previous year when I was sending in those applications was probably like more of when I was feeling that, like, what am I going to do? Um, because I definitely felt as soon as I heard that WVU had 22,000 students and my hometown has about 2000 students, I definitely felt like I, that's way too big. You know, I will fail right out if I try to go to a school that big and, and that I would surely be ranked number 22,001, like the least of these. And so I really, really entertained not even applying to WVU. But the only thing that kind of changed my mind at the last minute was that WV was the only university in the state that had a law school. And I knew I wanted to go to law school, which is this very interesting, um, like, butting of heads or, like, battling of wills. Okay. So uh, you knew you wanted to go to law school. And do you know what was drawing you to that? Was it was it sort of just like that's one of the, like, biggest, you know, sort of jobs there is? Yeah, I think it's partly that, but I also think, you know, I used to watch Perry Mason and the People's Court and Matlock with my grandma Goldie, uh, and I would put on her Sunday school suits, her like pink suit with the ruffly (laughs) shirt and carry around, uh, you know, a pretend briefcase. And I remember I was always very entrepreneurial. Like I was always starting little businesses and a friend of mine down the road and I started a B&B law firm. (laughs) So I, I just feel like I was drawn to it from a young age. And I actually took the, you know, like when we were in seventh grade, they passed out these personality tests that would tell you were lawyer, author, teacher, photographer, or interior designer. (laughs) And I have done all of them except for interior designer. And I do that kind of as like a hobby with our fixer upper house. So like it was a very (laughs) spot on accurate test. Yeah. Do you still, how do you even remember that? Do you still have the test? Did you like... (laughs) Oh, gosh, it's probably That's somewhere. Amazing. My grandma Goldie literally kept everything. Because <laughs> I so. remember those tests, but I can't remember. 
<laughs> what they said, especially everything on there. <laughs> right. Okay. So you went to WVU? Yes, I did. I did my undergrad at WVU. And was that something, how far away? Like, were you living on campus or you st- like, were mm. you local? Yeah, I didn't live on campus. It was about two and a half hours away. Okay. And there's a, a very interesting tension there because my dad was one of the going to WVU. He was not a fan of me entertaining going to just a community college for a couple years when I thought I would fail out. He was very much just like pushing, like, go, go, like, get out, go do the things. And then when I go to WVU and I then start to like have my world open up even more and I, you know, start to think about going abroad for a year to get my master's degree in England um, or when I start looking at law schools outside of outside of the state, suddenly he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's kind of like he had launched this rocket mm. and then it's about to leave the atmosphere. And he's like, wait, I didn't mean that far. Like, I thought it was like, I thought you were a kite with a string. I could keep you safe. I could keep you tethered. And now I realized I've actually just like launched you, you know, out of my orbit basically. Um, and that was a real hard thing for him. He was really, really not in favor of me leaving the state. He was really not in favor of me going to get my master's in England. And that was compounded by the fact that I got that scholarship a week to the day after September 11th. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. And how was he able to at least portray that sort of like no stay here in a way that he still was like very much believed in you, just wanted you to stay local? Or did it start to show up like he was trying to keep you like smaller, you know, like, because I know that sometimes with parents, it can feel like they don't believe in you because they love you so much. They want to keep you safe. So maybe try to talk you out of your big dreams, goals and stuff. That's that's my family. Yeah, I mean, I think it was... I think it was pretty always clear that like his reasoning for it, you know, he was, you know, like, you can't be serious. You can't be serious. You're not going to get on a plane. You can't be serious. But I do remember that the first time I ever said to him that I was going to go to law school and that it was going to be three more years after undergrad. um, I didn't know at the time I was going to do even the master's. So that would be four more years after undergrad. I remember him saying, you are never going to stay in school that long. And he kind of like said it sort of like um, thinking aloud and like that really stung me. And we've talked about this. It's it's totally fine now. But he has said to me that he never meant that as like something he thought I was capable of. It was more that he could not wrap his mind around going to school for eight years. And, you know, because he just graduated high school. And so it was more just sort of like, mm, like this filter that gets left over of what you think is possible in the world. We can sometimes start to put on other people, not because we specifically doubt them, but just because we can't imagine that somebody would, would be capable of doing something that long, you know, or that beyond our comfort zone, I would say. So I think that's kind of like what happens when people start to chase big dreams or do things like write a book is that for some people, that's just going to rub up against the limits they've put on themselves. And they're going to verbalize that even without meaning to hurt you. Yeah, I've totally lived and experienced that so many times. And and yes, you have to like constantly remember like, okay, like this is likely has more to do with them than like their belief. It's like that they can't even see those possibilities for themselves. So of course they can't imagine it for you either. Or it sometimes can come from like, yeah, it just triggers their own like issues with themselves and what they haven't done or haven't allowed themselves to do. So it's hard for them to believe in themselves or you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just like a filter with which you see the world, you know? Um, If you only saw the world in grays, it would be really hard for you to imagine anybody else could see reds and oranges and yellows and all the other things. Totally. So I think for him, he just 
he just really, we, I mean, we grew up in, in the rural part of the state, you know? And so not only were we in West Virginia, but we were in like the mountains of West Virginia and, um, we had traveled a little bit to some surrounding states, but for the most part, this was what he knew. And this felt the isolation, this like these like ominous mountains rising were not a threat to him. They were a protection. You know, they kept other people out and they kept danger out and they kept the like scariness in the world out. And he felt as like as long as I was within those mountains, I would be safe. So I'm guessing you did go to the year abroad. I yeah. did. Yes, I did. And what has that experience <laughs> then too? Like that's big for anybody to like go to a year abroad somewhere, but especially with yeah, coming from your background. Did you how did mm. you feel as you're showing up? First you go to college, that would be one thing, but then yeah, going abroad and then if you already were carrying this especially like were you still carrying what you had from, you know, being a kid and like I grew up a trailer in a trailer, like was that still showing up like oh, mm. me or did had you developed some more confidence in yourself and and how you showed up and related to people? Yeah. I would say it's both yeah. and, uh, you know, I both still had some of that chip on my shoulder and security and I was starting to develop a new, like, wow, I didn't fail out of college. I actually got the order of Augusta, which is this highest wow. award that you can get there. And like, I had gotten straight A's because I was terrified mm. of failing, you know? So when I went to England, I actually went on this thing called the Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship. And so what they do is that your local chapter will pick a, a winner and a scholarship winner and it's for a full year abroad to go, get, you know, in, in my case, I was able to get my master's because in England, they can do master's in a year. And the exchange or the deal is that while you're there, you are an ambassador for your home state or for your home club. And so I went around to about 50 some rotary clubs in England and Wales and Scotland, you know, just traveling around, I would do this presentation, we would have dinner with the members. Um, it was basically just like um, a rowdy, you know, uh, picture like a like an eagle, like Lions Club or what what have you, you know? And, um, but we, you know, there would be, I remember a lot of like delicious food and the members would definitely be having wine. And then I would get up and talk about West Virginia for a while. And my presentation, it was the same presentation that I gave at every place with some slides that I would show. And I had it built in. I cracked this joke that was something about like, yes, I am from West Virginia. And as you can see, I do have shoes which was, um, that was the chip on the shoulder part. Like I expected the rest of the world to see us and look down on us the way that I'd always sort of been told that the rest of the world looked down on us. And finally at one of the stops, this guy pulled me aside and he was like, Hey, like, why did you start (laughs) off so self-deprecating? Like, why did you start off like thinking we would think you didn't have shoes? And I was like trying to explain it to him. But I, I mean, that stuck with me. It was like, why do I assume people are going to reject me before they even do? And that became like a really big theme that year. And as I started law school at Yale, going into a situation, holding people at arm's length, cracking the joke before they can out of fear that if you wait and they'll get to hurt you by making that joke first or making that rejection first. So, yeah. So when he talk to you about that and you, and it did resonate with you. So you're saying that you went, then you went to attend Yale and you still were going with that? Or did he make you think about not doing that? Or were you showing up at Yale? Like I better like protect myself by going ahead and making fun of myself first. Yeah. It was more about how I treated my classmates and sort of like walking in with this kind of um, the best example I can give you of this is that when you are in law school, 
um, there's a kind of a running joke that you can tell which year people are in by how like intense they're studying or how like gunner they're being. And so the one L's are super intense. And by three L year, most of your requirements are done. You have your job post-graduation and you're just sort of like two weeks of school left, whatever, you know, you're sort of like laid back. And so most people thought I was a three L my first semester of law school. Uh, I just came in with this sort of like, whatever, like a like, you know, I'm aloof to you. I'm too cool for school. Like, mm. yeah, whatever. Maybe I'll try. Maybe I won't. I don't know. You know, kind of like I just wanted to fit in so bad and I wanted to belong so bad that I did these things where I put up walls. And I think that's something we all do is we believe we're going to be rejected. So we um, reject yeah. other people or we just come in trying to be the most put together person in the room and the most, we almost become intimidating out of a desire to not be rejected or to not feel like we don't, we're not good enough or we don't belong. And so there were a lot of people who were like, oh my gosh, you're one L? Like, I didn't even know. And I was like, yeah, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that's what I would do over if I had to do law school again is I wouldn't necessarily want to do the classes and the studying and reading 300 pages a night, but I would have liked to have gotten to know my classmates a lot better because I had a small circle of friends, but mostly I was just, um, I kept people at arm's length for sure. Yeah, I get that. And it's like, yeah, we think we're protecting ourselves, but really not. We're like mm. creating like so much pain. And then, yeah, you're never really close. This is again, I'm saying we, because pers- apparently I'm talking from my own personal perspective, because <laughs> I would do that also. <laughs> and then would feel like, mm. why is nobody really there for me? I feel like nobody even really knows me. I don't yeah. have any real friends, but I would, but for the same thing, I would like, I had, I was sort of the opposite where I was like, super friendly, had lots of friends, this, but like never like opened up to anybody. So I was like, yeah, everything's good. This, that, what can I help Mm -hmm. you with? But never let anybody support me. Never even let anybody in about how I felt about things or like my struggles or anything like that. Cause I'm the strong, I'm strong and independent. I don't need anybody. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it was really left me feel so lonely. um, And so, yeah, like I've done so much work on that and now I'm so the opposite. But um, yeah, for so many Mm -hmm. years, it was like, didn't let people in, but I felt like I was, you know, I'm the str- I'm the strong one. <laughs> um, if you haven't read her yet, you should check out Shauna Nequist. She's one of my favorite authors, and she writes a lot about this belief she struggled with her whole life that if she's not the strong one and the capable one and the one who can like hold it all together and like, you know, be able to get all the things done and never get tired and like never need rest or never need help, then as long as that's her belief is like, as long as she can stay in that place, she'll be worthy of love. And when you were just talking about that of like, um, I don't need help. I'm good. Like, everything's great. Let me help you. Like that reminds me a lot of what she writes about. I've gotten through that. Thank goodness. Cause it was not a good (laughs) place. And, and really, yeah, I can now see ne- what it was is the fear that if I open up, then mm. they want me. And it, and it was sort of, but I even took another, like, I love myself so much. I don't need anyone. Like, I don't have self-worth issues. Like, look at me go. But it was really, I wasn't opening up to people because I was afraid of being rejected. I was afraid that they wouldn't love me. I was afraid. But it's like, yeah. but I had it on the face of like, I love myself so much. I don't need anybody. <laughs> like, it was like, you know, me really right. lying to myself. Like, I'm the queen of self-love. <laughs> did you, you feel like you got that message when you were little? Like, did you have a parent who was really like, you're so great because you like buck up and you mm. dust yourself off when you fall down and you don't cry when you get hurt? Like, was that something that you picked up and 
in no i mean i what i know from my childhood is that i wasn't raised being told i loved you or being hugged or giving much um like uh validation and yeah and and again that was a mostly just hats how my mom was raised and then she was like that but there was a time like in my childhood where they decided you know apparently my mom was like okay never mind let's try it this way but i it was so uncomfortable to me like i still have a hard time hugging my mom to this day i hug other people Mm. but so i i don't have like a moment to pinpoint and it wasn't like that i was my sister's four years older than me and so they kind of were and like i said my mom was like focused on working and doing you know like so I and it's like, of course, like my mom loved me so much, which is why she worked so hard so we could have the things. But yeah, I somehow took on the belief that like nobody cares about me. So so I don't need you. <laughs> it would be very interesting, I think, for you if you if you could ever sort of like entertain getting to this place to have a conversation with her. Because I did a conversation with my mom in writing dirt. It happened between draft one to draft two. And in one, like if, if anybody had told me that this much unraveling and a nodding of my heart and like healing could happen in one three hour phone call, I would not have believed it until it happened to me. But what was cool is that by the time we did this call, I had already had started my podcast and like I had the microphone set up when we did the call and I kind of treated it like a podcast where I just leaned in with curiosity and I was like, tell me more about that. Like, how did you grow up? Like, when did this happen? And I learned so much stuff about what made her the version of her I knew. And I talk about in Dirt that one of the greatest first waves of freedom for me was when I got to a place of having empathy for little Mary and like what I put her through to like go out into the world and be worthy of love. But the second wave of freedom that hit me was when I learned to have empathy for the little versions of my mom and my dad too. And that they were little kids. If, you know, just like I was a little kid once, they were a little kid too. And what traumas did they have that made them take on things that they were, you know, like maybe she, you know, that she is a little more cold or doesn't hug or what have you. So I think that'd be really interesting. And there's just a curiosity for me to find out, like, what was her mom like to her? You know, what was her dad like to her? Yeah. No, I've actually been thinking about that because I've realized it more because I'm like, I don't even know my memories anymore. And it's interesting because my mm. father passed away many years ago, but he, I was closer to my mom than my dad when I became, was like teenager in college years. And then I was taking a philosophy of love class in college, which was all about self-love and like your, the narcissistic, you had to, you had to write papers on the narcissistic elements of your parents and think like looking into their lives and stuff. And my dad found mm-hmm. the papers and my parents never got along and I always wished for them to get divorced. And finally, my senior year of college, they announced they were getting divorced. And I was like, good. Mm -hmm. But now like what? But my father drove up to Chicago from Ohio, where we were from, without even telling me and like just came up and had this conversation with me without me asking, telling me his entire life story and about these things that had happened to in his life that shaped him. And he told me some about my mom and that why, you know, he tried to explain why they had raised us certain ways based on that. But I now realize I've never had that that conversation with my mom, like that she keeps things um, very private. Yeah. And so I have been like wanting to have that. And um, so thanks for bringing mm. that up to put it more top of mind. Yeah. But yeah, I was like, it's interesting because I had that conversation yeah. with my dad and then that like changed our relationship forever. Uh, yeah. I think let's everybody out yeah. there, like let's <laughs> pretend we're on a podcast and go have conversations with our parents. <laughs> so much to learn. Yeah. 
I mean, honestly, that's one of the biggest hopes I have for my, for this book. I have two big hopes for dirt is one is that people can let go of achieving for their worth and, and that they're safe now to rest. And the other is that they, that one I knew going into writing it. The other one that took me by surprise is I think this is going to become an anthem for picking up the phone and having those conversations. You thought the door had been closed on forever. Like I never, ever thought this much healing between one draft of a book to the second one could happen. Um, but that's what happens when grace gets involved, you know, and when it really takes root. And um, my mom actually, I saw it just pop through that she actually just sent me a message that she just finished the mm-hmm. book and, you know, was just talking about like how happy it made her, how it ended. And that right there is like the, like there should be like a swelling crescendo of music <laughs> at, at just how powerful and what, what healing that represents, that that's the reaction versus you know, I mean, I've right. spent writing a memoir months. I, yeah, I can only imagine yeah. like no matter how much of how amazing of a mother you are, like reading your daughter's memoir. Like, you know, it's like there's got to be mm-hmm. stuff that you're gonna be like, ah, I don't know. And so that that's her reply is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So and I, I mean, I think that's just that's the power of a phone call. That's the power of healing. And that's the power. I mean, like I said, my faith is important to me. So for me, that's the power of um, the way that God can change a heart. And I'm talking about mine, you know. Me, Trisha, I am so, so, so excited to announce I have a new product in my shop that I've been working on for a long time, and it finally is available to purchase. It is a daily intention, connection, reflection journal. You could also call it a planner. So on each page, there is this like template to fill out that I formulated things that I would do throughout the years to get me connected to myself, dreaming big, reflecting on what I did do today and being acknowledging myself instead of being so freaking hard on myself. Because right, we have an endless to-do list. We feel bad about what we didn't yet do. So on this daily little planner thing, you have, you start with three I am statements. This could be, I am brave. I am a badass. You could also be calling yourself into your future self. I am a best-selling author. I am a podcast host, even if you are not yet, but getting you thinking about what is it that you do want to call yourself into. And then you wrote, I choose to feel, how you choose to feel. There's a space for your top three want-to-dos for the day, what you're grateful for, your wins and your joys, acknowledging the good of the day, whether it's, I got a reply to that email. I laughed so hard at this video. I talked to so-and-so today. And at the end, you make sure to acknowledge yourself every single day for anything, for what you did, for who you are, whatever. So acknowledging yourself instead of being so hard on yourself. There's also lined pages on either side. So you have space to journal, to brainstorm more things, to list more to-dos that come up throughout the day. So this can be a daily place. You come and check in in the morning, take it with you as you're doing your action items, check back in at the end of the day. You could fill it all out at once. You get to decide. So excited about it. Go check it out in my shop, shop shop.yourdryologist.com. It comes in two different cover choices. One just says today on it, very simply, and the other option says I am connected to me. It's going to make a great gift for all your loved ones and for yourself. Can't wait for you to have it, for you to start using it, and for you to start feeling more connected to you.
All right, let's get back to the episode. Okay, um, let's jump back into you're in law school. Did you are also, so now you're in law school. Once you're in law school, are you enjoying and are you like, yes, this is what I want to do. I do want to be a lawyer. And did you graduate and become a lawyer? Or were parts of you like, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> What's that? What do I, what do I do now? Yeah. So I, when I went to law school, the hope was to become a professor of oh. law. I was going to teach philosophy of law. And that, you know, that there are these things that we are, and then there are things that we do. And so I think that I am a teacher. I have a teacher's heart. I think that I am a storyteller. I think that I am someone with incredible discernment who can hear between the lines of what people are saying and what they actually are feeling or actually mean. And so that has presented in different ways. That's presented in maybe like becoming a professor of law and teaching courses to creatives online and photographers online for years to, you know, now um, just teaching other people how to start to share their story. It's storytelling in the form of being a photographer or, you know, in when you have to be able to argue a case as a lawyer, you have to be able to tell powerful stories or now as an right. author. And, you know, just this ability is in mentoring or coaching or a podcaster to hear something somebody says and go, I feel like there's more to the story there, like this ability to lean in with curiosity. And so the things in hindsight, the dots connect, they make perfect sense. They are woven together by the things that I am versus the things that I do. And Paula Ferris talks about that a lot, really beautifully about asking your kids what they want to, who they want to be when they grow up versus what they want to be, mm. what they want to do. And so law school, I wanted to be a professor of law, but when I got to law school, I felt like it was much more a publish or perish, like kind of like a little more transactional with your students where it's like you research for my new book and I'll write you a recommendation letter. Oh. It was not this like deep mentoring friendship I had had with my undergrad professors or my master's professors. And so I kind of started to table that right around the time I met my husband who was a photographer and was starting a photography business. And I just started to see the possibilities of what if we started a business together rather than taking one of these law firm jobs I've been offered where I'm never going to see you. Oh, so you did graduate from law, or you're like about to graduate from law school? What you I graduated? Did graduate, okay, yeah. but you're yeah, like consider like okay, this isn't what I thought it would be, and then okay, mm -hmm. why don't we just yeah. start a photography business? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, that's the next reasonable jump. But yeah, that's so interesting. Um, what do you feel like made you? And was that totally your idea or his idea to like go to that? Like, was it just more, okay, I yeah. know this isn't feeling so right for me anymore. This thing that I thought I wanted, you're doing this. How about I just jump mm -hmm. in and support you? No, I think for me, it was much more that I come from a long line of self-employed people, you know, at small business owners. My dad is a logger. He had best logging company. I watched him struggle with that business for years and years to make ends meet. And I always said I was able and like to be able to do it and, and not have this thing that you love be a struggle to make a living. And so I think like entrepreneurial, you know, being entrepreneurial and, and um, having a, a brain for small business and a heart for small business was wired into my DNA because, you know, the last eight generations had basically been loggers, but like that also equates to kind of being a small business owner. And when I saw Justin's work and it was photography unlike anything I had ever seen, I didn't necessarily want to be a photographer, but I knew that I could make his business, this business together with him, our business, 
I knew that I could make that really explode. I knew I could do the marketing side, the contract side. I knew that I could do the branding and, and create the kind of um, allure around a brand to make people see us as the top of our field. And so I think I just like that was my like mm, entrepreneur gene really kicking in in full force. Like I saw something I really believed in and I knew we could make it work and we could make it work together. Wow. And what type of like photography was he doing at the time that you were like building a business <laughs> around? Yeah, when I met him, it was pretty much exclusively wedding photography. And then okay. over the course of it, we added fashion and editorial as well. Got it. So yeah, especially a wedding industry, that is such a like place where you can be like, okay, like we, I can make you whatever, this town's biggest wedding photographer and like really building a business around that. And so how did you... Yeah, what did you do? And did I'm guessing you did become it did become a very successful business. Yes. Or uh it did. Yeah. We were able to travel. I mean, we've photographed in Australia and London and Wales and Paris and the Caribbean and Hawaii and all over the place. We've traveled all over the world teaching other photographers and photographing uh fashion shoots. We did a fashion shoot in Venice. We've been flown to Sweden and Alaska for uh lighting you know, our lighting company brings us out to unveil their new products. So we have, we wow. have pinnacle, the highest of the highs that you can be. We were named legends of light by pro photo. So we've, we really truly said both of us, I think felt because Justin went to school for advertising photography at the number one photography school, which is RIT. I had gone to Yale for law school, which is the number one law school. And then we were going to kind of ditch both of those to do wedding photography. And at the time, advertising photography really looked down on wedding photography. Yeah. Like all of his professors were like, you're going to do what? And so for both of us, we felt this drive that if we were going to do this, we had to prove everybody wrong and we had to become the top of the top. So no one could ever question the decision, which by the way, is not a great reason to do anything. <laughs> right. You know, Don't do it. Other totally. people think do it because yeah, you love like it. Your heart has to be motivated. in it. Otherwise, yeah, you're not going <laughs> to yeah. be as fulfilled if you're just out there proving, look at me. <laughs> yeah, but but we did. We really did build, um, you know, we we lived in Connecticut, but we we were global photographers. And just at the height of that was when I decided to yet again leap in the net would appear, make a major pivot and retire from that to become an author. Yeah. So what was, um, what happened or was happening? Like, what were you feeling? Had you been feeling it for a while that like, I want to write, and, and is this, did you always know you wanted to write a memoir in your mm -hmm. story? Yes. Yeah. Since I was five. Okay. I've known that, yeah, this, this, <laughs> there were some deviations, but this was always where, uh, things were driving. This was always where my life was headed. And I think when you have something that big, that you want to do and you've wanted to do it for that long, you can get really good at putting up all these like say orange safety cones between you and actually having right. to take that leap off the ledge. And so I got really good at saying, oh, you know, the business is really working or, oh, we're really, calendar's really full or what have you. Maybe next year, maybe next year, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I actually hired a coach, her name's uh, Kim Butler with the White Boardroom. And I hired her about six years ago at this point because I was like, I want to go do this thing, but I have packed my life so full of good mm. things that I'm terrified to let go of that I don't have time or space to go do the great things. And so I kind of compared it to pecan trees, which will 
overproduce, if left to their own devices, they will overproduce fruit. They will overproduce good things to the point that they get so heavy holding on to them, they will split right in half. Mm. And I said to her in our first meeting, I am a pecan tree. I'm going to split right in half trying to hold on to all these good things. And so we spent years clearing out my calendar, you know, winding the weddings down, preparing our income to transfer over from weddings to online education, you know, just really making space to be able to go and do this and not completely be buried and not have time to do it right. And so I was very, very lucky to spend the last year because we prepared that way, doing nothing but writing and then marketing this book. Wow. So yeah, it wasn't just, okay, you know, I'm going to go write. And so we'll just like hire somebody else. Like you keep going, like the business keeps going and maybe he finds somebody else, whatever. You just totally transitioned the entire photography business. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, We still have our online education, but we were both able to go full-time, which I got to tell you, I don't know how we would have done it if both of us weren't full, you know, full in on this because nobody tells you what an incredibly full-time job it is to not just write, but bring a book out into the world. Yeah. And so had you been doing online courses before you like had the idea that you needed to pivot the business some, or was that like in preparation? Like what can we do to keep making money while also creating space? Online courses. Uh, I would say we had the online courses first and we had okay. transitioning into that. And then when we were really successful with them, we saw the opportunity and the possibility there and, the, you know, that it was scalable, you know, with weddings, you can't clone yourself. So, you know, you can have associates and things like that, but there's an upper limit to how many weddings you can take. Whereas with our online courses, we had, you know, seven or 8,000 students all over the world. So we were able to take the amount of work that we were doing and just scale it uh, globally, scale it a lot more widely. And, and that then started to show us the possibilities of, okay, so we could cut out this whole bread and butter leg of our business and replace it and not miss a beat. And, you know, you make the course and it's created and short of going through it a few times a year, launching it a few times a year, it just clears out a lot more space in your calendar. So in making all of these, you know, from back and just starting the photography business and starting to put yourself out there and then reaching all these different spaces and then, okay, now we're doing online courses and now, okay, I'm going to write a book. Like that's a lot of I'm putting myself out there. I'm showing the world I can do this and look what I, you know, look what we're doing or look what I have to say. So what do you feel like has helped you to keep being able to do that? You know, I think that it's, um, it's kind of like a muscle that you exercise and the more you exercise it, the less painful it is True. Um, where you, the first time you do it, it feels like your heart's going to explode <laughs> and like you're in like constant panic sweats or whatever. Um, And the more that you do it, the more that you have a track record, again, with me, my faith being part of it, like of God being faithful, the more that, you know, there's this, a great saying that's the God's past faithfulness demands my present trust. And um, I think the more experience you have with stepping way outside of safety, stepping way outside of comfort zone, stepping into the unknown, the more comfortable you get with with the unknown and with trusting in what you can't see. So I think it's just like a, a habit, you know, that or a muscle you flex or a muscle memory or something like that. The more you do it, the easier it gets. Yeah, no, that's totally true. And that, but with that, it still doesn't mean that I'm sure 
it wasn't challenging or like even, okay, I'm going to mm-hmm. write a book and then write, you have to put it out there. Hi, agents. Yeah. Hi, publisher. Like <laughs> it's like so much emotions that can come up. Um, yeah. So you've mentioned faith several times. Is that something that you and your connection, you've had your entire life or was there a time that that got really strong or mm-hmm. like where that came from? Yeah, I feel like I had a connection to God since I was little, little, like very little, like the five-year-old, you know, feeling like I'm supposed to write this book. I feel like that was God telling me that. Mm -hmm. Um, Not in a, you know, I hear voices sort of way, but just (laughs) in a like God having conversations with me about, you know, this this one day I'm going to put words to this story and it's going to make sense and it won't be wasted. Um, So I would say I was always close to God. I have had like a come and go relationship with church. So I, my grandma took me to Sunday school from like four to nine. And then I went to church with a fam, like, a, you know, my friend's family when I was a teenager. And then I kind of fell out of going and then I would go back and then I fell out of going. But I would say um, probably in the last eight years, I started going to a, a conference that was a faith conference and speaking there. And I just met some really incredible people. And I started to actually learn about faith and learn about God and learn about, you know, scripture and quiet time. And that as Christians, we're called to joy. Like these are things that I don't, you know, in Sunday school growing up, it was like, let me tell you about this guy, Nebuchadnezzar. And now we're going to sing a random song and that's it. And it's like, you, you really don't like have anything (laughs) take root in your heart. And so I would say that my, my relationship with church has only really started to get strong in the last you know, six or seven or eight years, somewhere in that range. But my relationship with God, now that's always been there. Yeah. And that so you're saying you were invited to speak at so that you were invited to speak at a conference and mm-hmm. then that was just like the connections there that then like brought you more into it. It wasn't yeah. like you went to a conference like oh I want to go for this like you were invited there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought I was like donating a skill I had like oh I'm a good speaker so I will come help you and speak at your conference. <laughs> Love it. And um you know it's uh you is as with most things like you think you're going there for somebody else. And it turns out that like you were the one who needed the help. And the first night we were there, the program said, oh, it's going to kick off with an hour of worship. And I grew up in like a Southern Baptist. I think we were technically American Baptist, but like little steepled church. You sat in the pew, you sang 1800s hymns (laughs) with your hands folded in your lap. You know, you did not get loud. You did not move or dance or do anything close to dancing. And so we get there that night. And when I saw an hour of worship, I didn't know that word. So I thought it meant like an hour long sermon. Yeah. And then we get there and this band comes out and like the (laughs) lights come on and people are standing up and like putting their hands in the air and waving them around. And I was like, what is happening? What is this? You know? And um, there's this line in dirt that I, where I talk about it, where like I'm in the back with like looking like an, you know, a girl in an deodorant unsure commercial like elbows against my side hands barely lifted up like I don't know what's happening and um you know that was the first time I even knew that was a thing but when you experience worship and it really does truly um take hold you know you just just this idea of like you're not reading a specific scripture or like a bible story or um just sitting there and being talked at you're actually just like spending that whole time just praising God. That was something I hadn't really done or or like had the words to do or the or the like, I don't know, the the tools to do was just this time spent just um letting God speak to you, so you praising God, you thanking God. And he just really started to have a lot of conversations there with me about 
it was time to lay some junk down. It was time to lay down these scarcity mentalities, these beliefs that I've been carrying around in my hands about, you know, what I would be able to do because of how I grew up and this anger that I've been holding on to. And, you know, I think he gave me like a little glimpse of dirt because my talk at that conference was called, it always started with dirt. And mm. I don't think, you know, he would have told, like told me how long it was going to take because that was another, I guess that that talk was probably like five or six years ago. But just the way that those pieces have lined up very faithfully and steadfastly, uh, looking backwards, I can see like his hand was all over it. But he, like, if he had told me at the time it was going to take six years from now, you'll write a book, I would have been like, what in the world? Get out of here. That's going to take too long. <laughs> um, let alone, you know, five to 40, <laughs> which is the real timeline. Five years old, you're going to write a book and we'll get around to it when you turn 40. <laughs> and so, when um I love hearing that and I had the same I was raised Catholic and went to like all Catholic schools and it was not a great experience. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, you know, I definitely like the nun like hit with the ruler and like this is what no, you only believe exactly what was written in the Bible and like, yeah, you go to church and you read this passage from this, yeah. <laughs> and then that yeah. so yeah, I would have seen an hour of worship and been like, oh no. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um uh, I want to talk again about, like I said, I loved your your bio line. I help world shakers own the muddy parts of their story. And I love that so much. And I obviously understand you and your story and that. What have you, what made you then, because it's one thing for you to be like, okay, I need to own this part of my story and now I'm owning it. So what is making you like now wanting to do that for other and is driving that? And how do you, and like, what do you see people that are like holding back and how do you mm. help them move through it? <laughs> Just a little, I mean, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Short question. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something like um, if you had spent a lifetime going hungry and you got your first taste of food and you saw a bunch of other people hungry, mm-hmm. you would want to feed them, you know, or if you'd spent your a life, you know, your lifetime not seeing sunlight, if you'd been in a dark room, and you go outside and you blink and it's it's painful at first. It's so bright at first. It's so mm. hard to adjust at first. But then you can start to see colors and you can start to see the world that you, you've just missed before. And you know there's still a lot of people in that same dark room. Um, you'd want to go back and say, hey, guys, open the door. There's light out here. There's a whole other world. You know, It, it involves being able to see with, with your eyes and see with your senses and see things you never saw before. So I think it's something like that. It's like when you're in pain and then you – get away from pain. You want to help other people get away from that too. And, you know, selfishly, I think that there are a lot of women who are going to go do a lot of incredible things that the world needs that I'll kind of get to see um, when they're not wasting all their energy, clenching their fists in this frenetic, uh, you know, chance to try to hold on and hold it all together and be this perfect version they think they have to be to just, just show up. Yeah. Or like afraid to share. Yeah. Like afraid if people know something about them, like mm-hmm. then they'll be found out or like, but it's yeah. really, isn't it so much like most of it is self-worth? Mm-hmm. Well, issue? I think it's self-worth, but it's also, I think it's like, we think we know about other people better than we do. We yes. think we know how people are going to react. We think we know that they're going to turn away from us or they're going to drop their eyes in shame or they're going to reject right. us. When the fact of the matter is this person we're becoming because we think it's what's going to make us acceptable is actually pushing people much further away than anything in our story could. This desire to come in and feel like every hair is in place and I'm wearing the latest clothes and I have the right bag, which I do all three. I'm not picking on them. 
But this thing we do, because we just think that other people go, okay, now you're one of us. What everybody else is feeling, because we all have our insecurities, is like, man, I bet she thinks she's so much better than me or she's so intimidating. I could never relate to that girl. And the craziest thing that maybe ever happened to me was the very first time I ever, ever, ever got brave enough in a talk to show the trailer and say, I was the girl in the trailer. You know, we had given talks before and we'd had people come up and say, that was a great talk. Thanks so much. At the end of that talk, the line was out the room. It was a giant ballroom at a big conference we speak at with like 15,000 people. It was out this whole giant room and down this whole huge hallway that security had to come break it up like three hours later. (laughs) As of people wanting to come up to say, I was the girl in the trailer. I thought I was the only one. I had no idea. I never would have guessed. I've known you. I've listened to you speak here for years and I never would have guessed. You know, and so this thing that I've been hiding because I thought it would disqualify me was the thing that actually made people connect with me more than they ever had. So that's, I think, the biggest thing is once we let go of that, we let that shame fall off like scales, a whole generation are gonna, of women are going to be supercharged to go out and do the things they've been called to. And we're all going to be better because of it. So I think that's part of it is like when you give, when, when are hungry, starving women who are suffocating and exhausted because they think achieving is their oxygen, when they get fed, when they can breathe again, when they can let go of wasting energy on stuff that does not matter, they are going to go set this world on fire in the best way possible. And that's the world I want to be part of. Love it. Love it all. So yeah, so now is this something new that now I'm guessing t- writing your book took up a lot of your time. And so now are you working with people to help them own their... You know, I, think, I think that's definitely going to be on the horizon. Um, we're about to kick off um, six weeks of coaching in the fall where we're going to walk through owning your muddy story awesome. um, as we walk through the book. But um, right now it's just, it's book. It's book for a while. Well, right. And so, yeah, yeah I guess by you sharing your book, then that is you're helping yeah. other people own their muddy, muddy part of their stories. Yeah, yeah for sure. Love it. Uh, I'm so glad I got to talk to you. I've really been loving it. I'm going to get to the questions I ask everybody. So first, I'm going to bring up, can you see this document? Yes, I can. So I have a product line, and these are all phrases that go on keychains in the product line. And I ask everyone to pick which phrase, not which phrase they like the most, but which one they want as a reminder in their life right now as why, because Mm -hmm. I will be sending you the keychain. So like, which one are you like, oh yeah, I want to see that reminder. Okay. Let me read through them here. Mm, Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. 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 Ooh, there's some good ones. I would say that I'm going to like be divided or tied between I am magic because I think there's something about turning 40 where you really start to go, oh man, I really <laughs> am magic. I really am. Like, I like me. I'm going to be hanging out with me hopefully for another 40 <laughs> or 50 years. And like, I really like me. <laughs> I really like this person that I, you know, can't get away from. That's really, that's a good one. And then I also, I think probably another big one would be, I trust the timing of my life. Um, because my husband and I have been trying to start a family for six and a half years. Mm. And like I said, I just turned 40. And so I, I, you know, there's so many feelings of we were on the checklist of timing that everybody's Mm. supposed to be on when we got engaged, when we got married, when we bought a house. And then we got off quote unquote off track, off the timing with starting a family. And I think just really making peace with like, there is no um, perfect age for that and no perfect way of doing that. And um, I'm going to be really surprised and delighted when God reveals to me how I'm going to be a mom. Yeah, I love that. And 
I'm sure you hear stories all the time, but yeah, I have a friend who's, I think, I think she's 44 right now and she's pregnant with her first and yeah, yeah. it's, it's all still possible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Well, and the many ways to bring children into your life and your family. Um, okay. What is a go-to to raise your joy levels? Um, I mean, for me, it's going to be empty and bone dry. It's like, all right, I have not talked to God in a while. And uh, it's like, you know, it's this thing where it's like taking your vitamins almost where it's like, ah, you know, they'll be good for you. And you know that you'll feel better (laughs) if you do it, but it just feels like a task and like a have to, and then you do it. And then you're like, oh, right, this is a get to. And I always, always feel better and more filled up and more joyful after spending time with God. So yeah. That's and it. what is that like for people that aren't with like, you know, is mm-hmm. that just could happen anywhere? Is it I, you know, yeah. go and kneel because it's like I think, you know, we can feel like these images of talking and praying. Is it just oh, yeah. even like closing your eyes where you are? And I mean, it for me, it can be putting on just a worship song that I love mm. and, you know, just thinking like spending time without ask without coming to God saying, P.S. Here's my like laundry list of things I would love to see happen today. Get on that. Here's your to-do list today, God. Get after it. I love it. Um, it's just coming and saying, I just want to, I just want to praise you and I just want to thank you for all of these things. And I just want to like actually pause for a second and realize everything in front of me right now is stuff I prayed for for years. And it's here and it's happening and this is crazy. Um, but it could be reading a devotional or just doing, you know, reading a little bit of scripture. Or honestly, I just like to walk and pray walk and pray, walk and pray. And one of my favorite, um, for somebody who's maybe like just wanting to like dip a toe into this, one of my favorite books is called Draw the Circle. And it's a 40-day prayer guide. And it talks about, it's based on a story in the Bible, but it talks about circling things in your life in prayer. And I like it because I think sometimes people get anxious about praying because there's this like sitting still aspect. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like meditating, but you you can be very active and pray. And I often sort out some of the best things and the hardest things in my life, just walk in on the seawall by our house. So yeah, uh, draw the circle. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay. Ask everybody to apply this phrase to their own life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So it could be like a habit of way of being that you are. So what is easiest for me is to do blank or to be blank. What is best for me is? Mm. What is easiest for me is to tell the romantic highlight version of my story (laughs) that's super easy and super quick and doesn't hurt anybody's feelings and doesn't take, it's not, there's no risk involved. But what is best for me is to really dig in and put the hardest, most beautiful because of how hard it was version of my story out there. So, I mean, I'm not kidding when I say I've woken up at 3.30 in the morning for months (laughs) straight, just in a panic of like, what is it going to be when this book is out there? What's it going to be like? Because up until then, I'd always told the like three minute version and talks, you know, like I was raised in a trailer, but I bleed gold and this is who I am. Um, And so to actually just slow down and spend 272 pages telling this story in long form. (laughs) And, you know, there's times you can't yada yada your way through things, right? Like it's like Elaine Seinfeld, I mentioned the bisque. Um, You can't yada yada your way through the hard scenes and actually sit in them. That was not the easiest, but it was definitely the best. I love it. And how does it feel now? It's only been out in the world a couple of days when we're recording this. How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling really good. I'm not going to lie to you. Like right now, um, like I mentioned, I just got that message from my mom, which is such yeah. a like, oh, like relief. And just like all of the reviews and messages and DMs I'm getting from so many people who are like, 
I had, you know, like, man, this, I'm reading your story, but it's my story. Mm-hmm. And like, how do I see myself so much in this? So I just feel like a lot of people are going to get a lot of help out of this book. And that's, that's the fun part, right? That's like, you spend so much time worrying over the words and worrying over the marketing and worrying over like how it's going to do. And then you just start hearing all these stories and people, women who are buying, going back and buying three copies, five copies, because they have to give them to these specific three or five friends that they have a picture in their head of like these people in particular need this book. Um, we're starting to watch it catch like wildfire, which is really cool. That's amazing. And like, yeah, that's it. You are changing people's lives one by one there as mm-hmm. you're getting each DM and comment. It's so awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Okay. The last question is the name of the podcast is Claim It. Mm. Because as I mentioned, so often we are putting these feelings outside of ourselves. Once I do this, be this, have this, then I'll feel enough, worthy, successful, fulfilled, whatever it is. And so I feel it's up to us to claim it every day, sometimes every moment of the day, because our minds like to (laughs) steer us in different directions. So what are you claiming for yourself right now? Mm, Man, I am claiming presence of mind to enjoy it and joy in it, not stress, not anxiety. And um. I, yeah, I think I'm just like claiming that I'm going to like, I'm going to, cause like the last few days have just been so chaotic with like my phone bouncing, like buzzing so much mm-hmm. and everything. So it's hardly even felt real. So I'm just claiming that from here on out, whatever else happens, I'm just going to be like as present in it as possible. Yes. Yes. Yay. I'm so excited to read the book, Mary. And again, thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much in this episode. And um, I can't wait to Yay. see all thank that you, you shared so in the book. Me. Yeah. Yeah. I really do feel like um, just from hearing some parts of your story, I feel like it's really going to resonate with you. Yes. Thank you. All right. I hope you guys loved this episode with Mary. Make sure to check out her book, Dirt probably make a great Christmas gift if you know anybody that loves to read. I know I love memoirs. Find more about her at Mary Morantz on social media, marymorantz.com. For full show notes, you can go to yourdriologist.com slash podcast and find the links to all the things that we mention there. Yeah, for more me, everything is yourdriologist.com and I'm at yourdriologist and I love hearing from you. Thank you so much for listening. Please do me a favor if you haven't yet, hit subscribe. And if you want to send me a review, well, send a, not send me a review, put a review, especially in the Apple App Store if that's where you listen to the Apple Podcast. Screenshot your review. Email that to me at podcast at yourdryologist.com and I'll send you a gift from my product line. Speaking of my product line, I mentioned that new daily connection journal planner thing that is out now. So excited. But don't forget, I have lots of other gifts this year when you're going to buy gifts for the people that you love. Think of small businesses, including my own. Got journals, mugs, magnets, the affirmation deck, notepads, all sorts of things. The keychains, of course, to inspire you to own who you are, to claim your joy, to claim your worth, to claim your life. All sorts of different phrases for all the different types of people in your life. Some that are more direct, like fuck your fears, (laughs) and some that are very sweet. I am magic. You know, cover all the bases. 
And of course, I also have the Daily Inspiration app. You can get in the Google Play or Apple App Store. It's called Own Your Awesome. It's hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations to, again, same mission, get you to own who you are, get out of your own way, claim your joy, claim your life. All right. And I love hearing from you. Please shout out the podcast, tag me at your geologist. Let me know why you're listening. And um, for the final thought, think about right now in your life. What can you name? What is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me? I don't know about you. I've had to definitely instruct some more boundaries lately in my life. So what's easiest for me is to talk to everyone, be open to seeing everything, being open to all the things. But currently what is best for me is to narrow what I'm taking in, who I'm talking to. (laughs) So think about that in you and your life. What is easiest for me is not always what is best for me. What is easiest for me is not always what is best for me. Right now, where can I notice what is best for me and maybe shift how I'm approaching my days and my life? All right. Keep on listening to more episodes or I'll catch you back here next week.